This is episode 21 of the Creative Strings podcast featuring violinist, conductor, and orchestra teacher Scott Laird. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. After a few episodes devoted to music business recently, we're turning the focus back into pedagogy today. And a good friend of mine for many years, Scott Laird, that's his bag. He's a string teacher. He's been teaching in high school orchestras for maybe 20 plus years. Many of you know that I'm, you know, I consider myself an educator, but I also frequently um, give it up the respect to teachers who are day in, day out in in school, in, in classrooms or in private studios teaching, you know, and I just, I have so much respect for these teachers. And Scott is one of these people. And one of the, the neat things about Scott uh, to me is his breadth, the fact that beyond his uh, deep interest in pedagogy, he's also a pioneering um, force in terms of having been into electric violins and improvisation, a multi-instrumentalist for a long time now. He's also a really serious conductor um, and just a great guy. So I'm super excited to have him on today. We're going to talk about a lot of pedagogy stuff and it's going to take some different directions. Hope you enjoy it. I want to acknowledge our sponsors, Electric Violin Shop. Electric Violin Shop, as I say all the time, the thing I love about them the most and why and the way that you should use them really is by calling them. If you go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings, you'll find their phone number there. You'll get an extra discount if you end up purchasing something from them, but you don't even really need to purchase anything from them. Just call them and take advantage of their unparalleled phone support. They're totally expert at everything related to electric strings, whether it's amps, um, electric instruments, pickups, gear, accessories. Um, They'll go as deep or as broad as you need them to. (laughs) Um, Also, Yamaha, Yamaha Strings. I've worked with Yamaha for over 20 years. They're incredible supporters of music education uh, and definitely all the projects that I'm involved with. I'm really grateful to them for supporting this podcast. They also make incredible string instruments, uh, electric violins, cellos, violas, basses, and an acoustic line. Uh, If you're not hip to it, you should check out yamahastrings.com and get hip. And now let's get into this episode with my friend Scott Laird. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today for the Creative Strings podcast. You and I go way back. We've known each other, I think, probably like 20 years. One of the things that strikes me about you 
is this this confluence or this skill set uh, that combines things such as a very serious background in pedagogy for classical teachers. You know, you're a highly skilled classical violinist, a conductor. You've done a lot of serious conducting. And also you're an improviser. And, and I know that you've been really involved in this discussion among the, let's call them the serious pedagogues, you know, because I, I don't consider myself a serious pedagogue. But, you know, uh, the traditional teachers who, who are trained as teachers in our classical music education around the country. And uh, so you're a rare you're a rare person in the sense that you you know all these things so well. And I wanted to ask you a little bit just about that in terms of, you know, how you approach it from these these different sides, maybe what makes you makes you different and or just just that. What what makes you different? What do you how does that give you an advantage into this ongoing discussion about what good teaching looks like? Well, first of all, thanks a lot for having me today. I'm really excited to have this conversation, and I appreciate the question. You know, uh, over the past 30 years or so, I feel like I've been uh, not only a teacher but also a student continuously. And I think back on my uh, my training as a as a kid growing up in a modified Suzuki program and developing my ear from, you know, the time I was about six years old and learning to play through the Suzuki method and then moving on through programs in music education. One of the things that that I found early on as a teacher is that if something struck me as interesting or exciting, that I could bring that uh, into my classroom and it would probably int be interesting or exciting to my students. And I'm thinking back to just my, my personal experience as a musician in middle school and high school. And I played bass in some rock bands, but I never really learned how to improvise on my violin until I was an adult and teaching. And, um, I thought, well, it'd be pretty cool if I learned how to how to do that, then I'll bet I could teach students how to do that or incorporate it into my teaching, and they would probably think that would be wonderful as well. And a little bit of positive affirmation with that went a long way. I can think all the way back into the 80s when I got to know Mike Marshall and the Modern Mandolin Quartet. Uh, while I was working in Palmyra, Pennsylvania, and they came into the school and they did a, a, a residency with my students. And I thought their, the bluegrass element of the mandolin was so cool. So we started a, a camp to teach kids how to play bluegrass music in the summers. And I didn't know a lot about it, but I thought, okay, I can learn a little bit about this and I can facilitate the teaching of it. And that camp was really successful for a number of years in Palmyra. I had another group of students who got signed to a record label playing thrash music in the late 80s, and they asked me to play on their records. So I learned as much as I could about thrash music and played on those records and received a fair amount of notoriety for that work in the late 80s and early 90s. And then after that, I started thinking, well, I better learn how to improvise for a variety of reasons. And I started bringing that to the table. And one of the things that has become an ongoing sort of theme in my teaching is that I try to bring functional musicianship into every orchestral rehearsal, into every violin lesson, or even every 
uh, uh, pedagogical seminar that I that I lead, that that in the end, one of my strong beliefs is that that we have to be functional as musicians, as well as technically proficient or able to to um, regurgitate something else. We need to be able to see the really big picture, which ultimately uh, that's what improvisation is in so many ways. Um, so that's just been sort of a, a career long goal of mine. That's, that's amazing. I, I love the fact that you, you kind of called it out as functional musicianship. What does that mean to, to someone maybe from the coming up in the eighties who was, who was doing quote unquote, just straight up classical pedagogy? Like what's the difference between that and functional musicianship? Yeah, functional musicianship to me. I teach this in my uh, my uh, piano and guitar courses that I teach here at the North Carolina School of Science and Math right from the very beginning. And the way I couch this is that you learn skills on your instrument. And we also teach music theory. And functional musicianship to me is when your music theory, scholarship, and comprehension intersects with your playing skills. And um, that can happen at so many levels. I think the, the best case study for me has been my son, Matt, who's a music major at UNCG right now. And he's sort of grown up in this household where we're not only striving to uh, to represent all of the best in classical music playing technique and and instruction, but also where we jam on our guitars or on mandolins or on fiddles or piano or whatever it happens to be and then and try to incorporate everything we know about music theory into everything we know about playing. And when those two things intersect, that's when real creativity and music making happens. And, and I really believe that can happen and should happen in the orchestral rehearsal on a day-to-day -day basis. It should happen in, um, in a non-traditional musical setting every time you encounter it, that the great skill intersects with comprehension and scholarship in music theory, that's, that's when you can do anything as a musician. Wow, that's awesome. Um, how do you bring, you know, teaching functional musicianship into the orchestra classroom? Uh, or can you give an example? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of, the, one of the great examples that I like to use is the, the rhythmic grid, uh, which I articulate all the time in orchestral rehearsals. You know, so many conductors, when rhythmic issues are less than perfect, the first answer is to simply say, hey, watch the conductor. <laughs> and to me, that's usually not the answer. Usually the answer is to focus on, orally focus on the rhythmic grid. So who has the the lowest common denominator rhythmically, the inner rhythm. In other words, to put it on a really basic way, who has the 16th notes, you know? Right. Who's playing the role of the hi-hat in the rock band? <laughs> and if the orchestra can focus on that, then, then all of the rhythmic issues that occur above that can be fixed. One of my great friends, conductor Jung Ho Pak, who I uh, work with at Interlochen, 
has a great way of saying this. He'll say, you know, at all times, members of the orchestra have to know who the teacher is and who the student is. And um, I try to bring that to every rehearsal. So if the, if the um, inner rhythm is being played by, let's say, the second violins. Uh, in fact, right now in my orchestra, we're working on uh, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. And so right now, the, the violas and the second violins throughout that work have the, the inner rhythm. They have the lowest common denominator of determining tempo and accuracy. Everybody has to know if another section has that 16th note passage, that's where their rhythmic ear must go. So at times in an in a orchestral performance, sure enough, the conductor is the teacher. They're the one giving them the important information. But there are other times that somebody else is giving the important rhythmic information. And you can get that information both orally by listening for it, but you know, the beauty of the string section is you can get it visually too by looking at the bows and, and seeing it. So that's an example of functional musicianship in the orchestra where the kid that's sitting eighth chair, second violin can own the fact that my section is the teacher right now and I'm the leader of this. And I've got to be uh, dogmatic about rhythm and not kind of bend to somebody else's impression. I'm the leader. Just like in the in the rock band, the rhythm guitar player is establishing rhythm or the hi-hat on the, on the drum kit. And so bringing those kinds of ideas into the orchestral rehearsal and ultimately the performance, I think enhances every member of that orchestra's ability to play um, not only accurately, rhythmically, but also it, it frees them up to be real musicians and to think like a functional musician should think. And I, and I don't think we see it a whole lot in orchestral rehearsals. So, so I feel like it's something that I sort of bring to the table in a, in a unique way. I think about this stuff all the time. And um, anytime I can grab another little concept that helps make an orchestral player functional musically, I, I try them all the time. Do you have any any ways of, of, you know, any tricks that you can think of for dealing with a harmonic concepts or, you know, improvisation, arranging, composition, contemporary styles, these kinds of things in the group orchestra classroom setting? Sure, absolutely. I, I'll give you a great example. Um, one of the uh, interesting things to figure out as a as a musician, and one of the things that can open your eyes functionally pretty quickly in the orchestral rehearsal is beginning to hear secondary dominance. So if you take a look, let's say you're working on a piece uh, from the classical era, something by Mozart, and you're rolling along through the exposition and there are not a whole lot of accidentals, but then all of a sudden you hit the development section and there's accidentals all over the place. Something I love to do is to pick up a guitar and simply play the secondary dominant progression that Mozart might be going through to allow the orchestra to begin to hear how that development works and what's happening there. That sort of process for me started Again, I'll reference my son because a lot of these ideas start in the practice room, uh, just helping my son learn how to play when he was a, a, a little one, you know. And, and I can remember when he was playing the Vivaldi A minor uh, movements that are in Suzuki Book 4. I, I'm not a great piano player. I'm a much better guitar player. So I'd want to accompany him so that he could hear the harmonic underpinning behind the, the piece of music. And so I sat down and 
you know, analyzed the the Vivaldi's so that I could play them on guitar along with them. And, th- and there you begin to really see those secondary dominant pr- progressions that are, they're just clear as the nose on your face when you have to play it on guitar. What I noticed was then he then, once he had that harmonic underpinning locked into his ear, it completely changed the way he as a, you know, a little kid would perform those pieces. So then I started bringing that into the orchestra rehearsal and just being able to to demonstrate that harmonically will change the way an ensemble hears a difficult passage that that might at first just look like lots of accidentals and and something that's really difficult and then once you hear that harmonic progression and hear what's going on with it it transforms the way a group of students will perform it yeah that's awesome I really that 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 concept of harmonic underpinning to me is huge. I think about that when I'm teaching even stuff like uh, scales or upper positions, shifting. Uh, if you can attach harmonic underpinning to melodic exercises, mm. no matter what they are, it transforms the way students approach them. Wow. like the, the functional musicianship and theory and stuff like that I know that I know that you're, you're teaching at the North Carolina School of uh, for science and math and uh, from what I, if I remember correctly a lot of it is high school but but I'm not sure if if you do much with younger kids besides your own kids obviously but right. my question that I'm getting to is like when does this start when does when is teaching functional musicianship start in your opinion because for me I've always found it was hard for me to convey some concepts at younger than a certain age, you know, like if it's theory or harmony, you know, um, I wonder how you deal with that question from a standpoint of more like early childhood pedagogy and and that sorts of thing, or maybe you don't deal with that at all, or I'm just curious. Well, I, I would say that I really believe in, uh, what my friend Jim Chellen referred to as the gestalt approach. You know, your first lesson is is foundational, you know, and, and, and so I really believe that every lesson kind of builds that sort of that wall of understanding and comprehension. So uh, I believe approaching everything functionally from the very, very beginning is important. And I would stress that I'm not an early childhood specialist by any means at all. In fact, over the years, what I've sort of noted is that because I'm not working in the elementary arena on a daily basis, I I try to avoid um, doing too much along those lines, except that I try to, uh, any of these ideas or philosophies or sort of big picture ideas that I develop or begin to think about on a large scale basis, I try to make sure that they have application at at all levels. So really, I find myself in front of middle school and high school kids primarily. To answer your question about the School of Science and Math, we're uh, an institution for 11th and 12th grade students from across North Carolina. So in my daily work, I'm really only working with 11th and 12th grade students. But my work at Interlochen and lots of conducting appearances with middle school groups um, kind of 
keeps me in in that arena as well. And it, you know, it's been so interesting in recent years. So much beginning strings in the schools really starts at the middle school level in a lot of states. So you sort of do find yourself working with these early adolescent kids that are still relatively early in their in their playing. But functional musicianship to me has so many, so many meanings. But if we go back to that harmonic conversation that we were having a little bit ago, it's never too early to have a harmonic underpinning to something that you're learning to play. And I really think most of the pedagogues working today really understand that. You know, if you look at any of the new method books that are coming out for school string orchestras, they almost all include MP3s and and harmonic underpinning for the most basic of songs that that children learn. Even if they're learning rhythmic exercises on open strings, there might be some kind of a really cool backing track that they can play along to to hear how that open A or open D or open E uh, fits into uh, a greater harmonic structure. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's essential right from the very beginning. Well, to me, that strikes me like sort of like having an accompaniment. And, you know, even like starting as a Suzuki kid, I mean, listening to recordings, hearing the songs with accompaniment, go to your lesson, you play for your teacher. And, you know, as a violinist, that's one of the things that I think uh, kind of handicaps us in a way is because we're, we're... we don't have a way to easily play the harmony. We play the melody, so but we can uh. hear that we can hear the accompaniment. We play for with our teachers. That for me never gave me what I would say fun- call functional musicianship in terms of uh, in terms of harmony. But for kids that are learning piano and guitar in school in group classes, I think that they're they're developing functional musicianship around harmony because from day one, a guitar player has to learn a song and they have to actually play the chords and look at a lead sheet. That, so that to me, now you may disagree and, and I'd love to hear your opinion, but I mean, do you, do you think that, first of all, do you think that that's more of a explicit, you know, way of, of making someone <laughs> deal with yeah. the harmony? I totally agree with everything that, that you've said. And I think, Pedagogy is systematic and it's sequential. So you have to sort of choose your battles a lot of times. And and so if you think about the role that a guitarist, like when you're learning early guitar skills, well, I'll just use my guitar class as an example. In my guitar class, kids take them, you know, if they take a term of guitar, I want the kid to have to walk out of that first term with a little bit of learning to read tab because that's how kids learn. That's how we, everybody learns a, a lot of guitar. I want them to learn some strumming technique and chord functional, you know, just harmonic stuff in terms of playing chords. And I want them to learn a little bit of note reading. So that's my goal in one term of guitar. When you think about what is foundational to um, bowed string playing, I think the generation of tone is sort of the number one early priority technique tone because everybody can play good tone on a, on a strummed instrument pretty much day one. And with a bowed instrument, you have, again, you just kind of look at it and go, okay, what are our priorities here? What's our goal? And so early on, I would say that the early goal is appropriate technique on a bowed string instrument, wonderful development of tone. And then what are bowed string instruments doing? At least initially, the goal is is sort of melodic understanding. But the, but the trick here is, is when the kids get into a, uh, when they get far enough along that then you can begin incorporating 
harmonic understanding, chord structure. Uh, and, and I would say for a bowed string instrument, it's really understanding the role that they play at any given time. I mean, that's, to me, probably would be a higher priority to me than learning, let's say, to, um, you know, to, to strum chords on your violin, because how often are we doing that really initially? But, but this idea of, okay, student and teacher that we talked about before in an, in a, even a string quartet setting or a small orchestra with, with young players, it's super important that the basses understand that they're providing harmonic information that's going to run the whole way up the orchestra. And then how do we listen to that harmonic information? And what's their role versus the color instruments in the middle of the orchestra versus the melodic instruments on the, on the, on the violin side and, and how do, how do basses and cellos match up those octaves that they so often play to be absolutely in tune. And, and then when the cellos drop out and the basses are supporting that uh, fundamental tone on their own, how does their role change as opposed to when the cellos are in like that to me is super functional in terms of what we're doing with ensembles and, and um, how kids listen to what they're what they're doing. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, no, it does. I, it, it, and I'm learning a lot <laughs> from, from hearing how you talk about it. Cause you know, cause I sort of, uh, I, w- I was never really trained as a pedagogue. So I always love talking to people like yourself who, who have the benefit of that training and not to mention just not your training only, but, um, your, the fact that you've been in the classrooms for years and having these conversations with other teachers and people who really study, these things from that perspective. It's, it's, it's really helpful to me. Um, but I, I, w- I would just jump in and say that as I look at, you know, again, my life and my, my progression as a musician, my interest in being able to do more on my violin and to be a functional musician on my violin, I really think, I think so much of, of my work really still to this day is, is based around my, my, my tone and my playing technique. And that has allowed me then to then focus in more recent years on chord structure, um, how, how I can, how I can work around, let's say, uh, you know, I play in church all the time and I walk in and just did yesterday. I walked in and got handed some lead sheets and then I just kind of go. And it's been sort of this lifelong progression of now, how do I take what I know about my playing technique that now is so natural and I don't have to really think about technique so much. And now I can apply those, those technique and tone concepts into my work where I'm really thinking much more about harmony and um, harmonic structure and my role within the context of a larger group. And it would have been much better for me had that started when I was in middle school. For me, it just so happens that that started as a bass player and taking actually a lot of that interest for me began uh, my junior year of high school. I had sort of fizzled out on piano lessons and my parents were like, okay, we've spent a lot of money on piano lessons and you've not really gotten anywhere. And um, a guy in my hometown named Jeff McGee uh, was, I believe, working on a composition major at University of Michigan. He was home for the summer. So my parents sent me over to Jeff's house and asked him to give me private theory instruction. And Jeff taught me all about the circle of fifths and taught me how to play a one four five progression uh, in every key around the circle of fifths. And all of a sudden, I became a songwriter. You know, that's where that happened for me. And um, boy, if we did that earlier in 
middle school or, or from the very beginning where kids are really hearing and understanding that stuff, the sky's the limit. Love that. I want to, I want to actually want to go out on a limb here and uh, share kind of three ideas that, that come to me for ways that classical or Suzuki teachers could introduce some functional musicianship um, lessons early on. And essentially, I think these are the kinds of things that guitar players learn immediately, but that as a, you know, someone who was trained from Suzuki from age five, I didn't start dealing with until I started playing guitar when I was 15 or 16 like you. Uh, so, okay. So here's, here's one idea. Uh, and you can, you can either just say, yeah, you love it or no, there's a problem with that. Or, or maybe you <laughs> want to add to it. So first one has to do with groove and you, you addressed it in, in your own way. I think talking about subdivision in orchestras and, I got a lot of, you know, training from from my the best conductors and teachers that I worked with who talked about the importance of subdividing in a classical context where the pulse moves still, right? There's still a lot of, you know, some rubato that happens. But why not have kids from the beginning on their Suzuki songs, for example, you know, be clapping out the groove with the offbeats? Like so for example, one of the things I do with uh, my son now, Dalton, who's almost seven, and that I did with Cammy, who's 19, from age three, is on all the Suzuki songs. If I don't have my violin and I'm accompanying them during their practice sessions, then I just beat out time. And I like to do the offbeats. So if it's like, do, do, dee, 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 do, you know, and I'll, I'll try to keep it, you know, pretty much like a consistent you know dum bum 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 bim bim bum bum bim and you probably can't hear my uh, my foot but it's given the one one right you know or something like that yeah. like any of the songs like getting that groove going and getting that backbeat as a part of it you know do you do you like that idea or do you have a, do you see a problem with that idea no i love it uh, there, yeah. there's there's nothing wrong with that idea in fact i i think that um i think the idea of backbeat is one that took me a while to figure out later because I never really had that introduced as a youngster. And, I, and uh, I will tell you, I'm certain that the first I really started thinking about groove and backbeat was in the experience that I referenced earlier with Mike Marshall and the mandolin quartet. When I heard them just start rocking bluegrass stuff and there's that constant backbeat going and I use the word groove all the time in orchestra rehearsal and the concept of groove. And it, it uh, because while rubato and expression are a vital part of, of what happens in an orchestral setting, I find orchestras fight each other all the time rhythmically. I, I'll give you a great example. This is like, almost like a current pet peeve of mine. And, and it's really, um, it's, 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 it's not even a pet peeve. It's just, it's built on experience. And I have found that the dotted quarter note, eighth note rhythm is inaccurately played from a groove perspective all over the place. Um, and I've, right. I've, I've watched conductors bend to the will of players in amazingly high profile performances right. where the dotted quarter note is, it isn't given enough value and groove is what keeps that from happening. If everybody is schooled in groove and understands that, that there is a pocket to play in, um, it, it changes absolutely everything. 
I do believe that groove comes back to inner rhythm or subdivision. We can call it lots of things. But, you know, it's funny. I, I, I'll tell orchestras all the time that in, in my brain, you know, I think conductors or teachers say count all the time. <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't think the most functional musicians count. I don't, the numbers mm. aren't really going through my head. What's, mm. what's really going through my head is groove. And mm. uh, the way I describe it to students is sort of like a drum kit going all the time. There's a, right. there's a, you know, a 16th note, uh, inner rhythm. There's a backbeat on uh, coming from the snare drum. And if you begin to sort of hear that and imagine that, or not have to imagine it, actually hear it in appropriate passages, I think it it can really change everything, and so I'm a hundred percent for that. That's a that's a a great concept, and it has a place, I think, in everything from Suzuki to to more non traditional styles. I mean, it's that's functional musicianship at its core. Yeah, I love that, and and I would I would flip it around, and I would I would have the the student have to hold the groove too, right? Yeah, maybe, no doubt. maybe yeah. with their and I, I'm assuming that a lot of um, you know, if somebody if somebody were to come in and do a drum clinic or a, a percussion clinic or, or just a rhythm clinic with kids, and this is one of the things I do in a lot of high schools, I'll have them do some of those independence exercises, like the most basic independence. Like, for example, where your right foot holds a whole note, left foot does the half note, uh, right hand does a quarter note, left hand just tapping, right, or stomping, you know, and uh, um, or just have them do sort of like as if they were sitting at a drum kit and do a very simple drum beat where you've got the, the, uh, the bass drum giving you down beats and you've got your backbeat happening and maybe beatboxing. Uh, I've seen some great beatbox workshops, but I think getting kids doing some of those rhythmic exercises from a, from an early age, those kind of basic things probably that a beginning rock drummer would do from day one, I'm guessing. Yeah. I'm thinking that, that that would just be such a valuable supplement for them that would extend on into their life, as you said, in this sort of starting with this overview, gestalt overview from the very beginning. It would, it just, me, um, it would create a huge foundation that would just last on and on. Do you, do you agree with that? I totally agree. And I think the key it sort of leads into another just kind of concept or philosophy or structure that, that I think about a lot. And I think that all good teaching is systematic. And um, by saying that, what I'm really saying is you have to sort of know where you're heading mm. to know to know where you are right now. Wow. And the problem that I think you're expressing and, and I certainly felt is that that aspect of our sort of musical training didn't necessarily happen in a systematic and sequential way. Yeah, so many, you know, going back to that guitar re reference, so many young guitar players learn guitar, you know, they're just rifling through YouTube and trying to find as much as they can. So here's here's my belief on good pedagogy is built on system and there's basically three criteria that that I think it needs to have. Number one, it needs to be sequential. You have to start at point A in order to get to point Z. And you have to sort of know, okay, once we master a, then let's go to B. And once B is mastered, we're going to see, and we're never going to forsake A in that process as we get on down the road. So mm. that's that's actually a very Suzuki concept because that is that method is so absolutely sequential and you never sort of quit twinkle, twinkle, even when you're playing the Bach double, you know? So that's number one. Number two, and we've actually touched on this a little bit today also, is that a good system has really strong nomenclature. In other words, there's words 
involved in the system that means something. Um, so if we're talking about groove, groove is a, a piece of nomenclature that doesn't get used nearly enough in the traditional orchestral environment, but it's absolutely important to A, understand the word and to have felt groove. Uh, I think a lot of young orchestral players or um, or young, young players have never really been forced to experience uh, groove. I'm actually reminded of a of a conversation I had with a friend who was part of a performance of the Bach double that she told me there were several thousand people playing in. And she told me it was it was a Suzuki uh, conference of some kind. And she told me that it was the most amazing experience she ever had because you couldn't go wrong. And really ultimately what she was talking about was groove. Once that once that that wave was sort of set off and the groove was locked in, you could do anything you wanted around the groove of the Bach double. It's so and and so so just to get back to my point, nomenclature is the second of those really important bullets. And then the third bullet for me is harmonic underpinning. And to me, harmonic underpinning is the why. Why do we do it? Why do we play that that F sharp? tweaked up just a little bit if it's a leading tone to G or why do we why does a, a root note of a chord have to be a little bit louder than the than than the upper partials or who knows what but harmonic underpinning. So so that's a system to me. That's a good pedagogical system. It's sequence, uh, nomenclature and harmonic underpinning. And if you've covered all those bases with a with a student and or with a, a group that you're working with over the long term, you've probably done pretty well. That's great. two that I have are related to, I guess we'll say harmonic, would you call it functional musicianship? Yeah, functional functional musicianship. musicianship when it, when it comes to harmony and form or harmonic form, if you will. So this is, again, the things that I wish that I would have learned growing up as a Suzuki kid and that I immediately learned once I had, once I started playing bass and guitar, like you in high school, I think that, that a kid who is in Suzuki book one, I think a cool exercise to have them do in their lesson would be to say, okay, listen for when the chords change. Let's listen to a recording of the piece and let's just like snap our fingers or clap our, you know, clap our hands every time the chord changes, which, which by the way, I want, I mean, obviously a lot of this classical music, it's not as like, here's a chord here's a chord, here's a chord, you know, it's more, it's more contrapuntal, right? So it's less like block chords moving like in a a band, but there's, it still happens a lot of time. So I think it'd be interesting to do, you know, just, you know, tapping it. Well, actually, 
I guess you would have to change it there. <laughs> da, yeah. da, 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 da. But but also or only changing when the chord changes, right? Like would do you feel like would that be a wouldn't that be a powerful lesson to have the because I just never focused on I had no idea when the chord changed. Yeah, uh, let me say this. I, I think it absolutely would be powerful and it could be incorporated into good pedagogy all day long. I, and and I'm going to I'm going to go back to my children and, and my work with my kids because it's the on the one on one side and the Suzuki stuff is just kind of where my experience is in, in, most recently. But um, uh, I've got my youngest son is uh, playing bass and he's learning, you know, He's 14 years old. He's learning repertoire in the bass, and I love to go grab my guitar and just strum chords while he's and 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 actually, it really tests me because I have to look at these melodic patterns and sort of guess. Okay, what's the what's the harmonic structure of what's <laughs> right, right? And it, it kind of drives him crazy because it it locks him into to what's happening. He can't he can't be as um, it forces him to be more meticulous and uh, can be frustrating, as you know. I mean, once you have that, but it but you know, he knows it makes him better. And, and I think the reason it doesn't happen, honestly, if I'm just being honest, it's because so many teachers may not be multi-instrumentalists, may not be really comfortable sitting down at the piano and, and, and drop in, you know, just chord changes over what their kids are playing or picking up a guitar and playing. So, so it really goes to, you know, instruction at the music ed level in colleges. But here's the good news. I, again, I'm watching my oldest son, who's a music major at UNCG, and he's doing it every day in his piano skills class. And he's thinking about harmony as a, as a pedagogue way more than I did back in the early 1980s in a music education program. And, and so I got to tell you, Chris, I think that I think we've figured it out as a as a as a society, sort of as a music ed society or a, a community. That's a better word. We figured it out as a community, but but some have sort of are, are pushing it harder than than others. And and everybody has a certain comfort level, but I I do believe the more eclectic we make that instruction for our young music students, and the more we bring that in, no matter what that idea is, the the better that student's going to be in the long run. So that's a great idea, and it's something that kids could and should be asked to do without question. Yeah, my third the third idea I had along those lines was was just to ask every student to be able to learn the baseline like a basic version of the baseline to a song and and so they wouldn't have to be able to articulate all the chords on an instrument which is difficult to do right but yeah. if you could get them if you could get a violin player to just be, be here's the lead sheet and i just want you to play the root of the chord which is the same as the the letter name of every chord right just on the downbeat so you can hear it don't you yep. th don't you think totally. that would be a powerful thing? There was or an old pedagogical tool that was out there. Again, when I started teaching and I was teaching elementary, it was um, a series called the Discovery Series, and the primary arranger was a guy named Bruce Chase. And I've always liked Bruce Chase's arrangements for young orchestras. And one of the things that was 
super cool is that every arrangement had the melody, whether you were the bass player or the violin player, you got the melody on one side of the sheet and then you'd flip the sheet over and you'd get a, um, a harmony part. And so uh, you could do it as, a, as a, an orchestra or you could just be learning the melody of, you know, it's a small world or simple gifts. I can't remember all the tunes. And, um, and I can remember that bass line being on the opposite side, and it was really effective. There's, there's actually another book that I'll bet lots of teachers are using uh, this week at their school called Christmas Kaleidoscope. And uh, it's got, you know, 12 holiday tune arrangements on it, but the kids can see the, the, the melodic line, a sort of a primary harmony line, and the bass line. And so you can have your violinists looking at seeing that bass line and, and defining the, the chord from there, which is, there's no downside to that at all. That's total upside all the way. I love that. I love that. Um, these three ideas, I mean, the one of just kind of having a kid play the groove on any song or, or you know, learn a, a basic groove and, and play with the groove and or set the groove, put their instrument down and set the groove somehow with clapping and stomping. And um, another one, which is just to test their awareness and build their awareness of when does the chord change, you know, the, the, the harmonic rhythm. The third one, I think, to, to ask them to, to work on the bass line or be able to express the bass line the most simple way. All these, to me, strike me as literally the things that are learned in the first lesson by every member of the rock band, you know, the guitarist, the bassist, and the drummer. And what's interesting about this, I'm, I'm interested to ask you, I've got to assume that with all the guitar instruction classes that are being added to the workload of orchestra teachers around the country, that this is forcing them to actually learn a lot of these these things, you know, maybe maybe sometimes for the first time in, in terms of really internalizing it. Maybe they studied it in school, but they hadn't really been forced to internalize it in the way that you and I were when we started playing in rock bands. Or, so, so that this bridging of teaching guitar in school is, is actually helping our teachers you know, develop those skills, those, those what were called supplemental skills, which I really don't believe are supplemental. I think, I think as <laughs> yeah. you said, they're, they're critical to what did you call it? Functional musicianship. <laughs> Sorry, it's a long, it's not much of a question here. I'm just lecturing here on, on, on in your interview. I appreciate it, though. Uh, <laughs> but but um, I'm assuming you'll agree that it's it's only a good thing that we, that we need, that we have more of this functional musicianship being taught through p uh, group piano in high schools, uh, high school teaching scenarios versus classical piano, right? And also through group guitar class. But also, does this speak to, I assume it's that you don't conceive of it as being specific to instruments, but being more specific to the culture of different musical scenarios. And I like to think about it as being almost like the participatory culture, which is the way that rock bands learn, versus the, I don't know what you'd call it, academic culture of classical music culture. So do you see that as a convergence of really us learning as classical pedagogues and as classical musicians trying to learn more from the participatory culture and having those things converge more. So here's, here's my take on that. I think that, that ultimately what good teaching is, is when you take the sum total of your experiences and then apply it 
to your classroom. And that's actually what I was saying when I was early on when I was saying, you know, the things that interested me ultimately are going to interest my students. And right. and so I, I always say what great teachers do is they are continually adding tools to their tool belt of of good of strong pedagogy. So so if and here's the other piece of that is most people default to the way they were taught. And I say that with all respect, because if you've gotten good at playing the violin or playing in orchestras or um, or playing the viola and you had a great traditional classical instructor, your default is to go right to the way you learn to play. So the so this the shift to incorporating concepts from a participatory culture into the the orchestra class or into the the bowed string environment is a it it's naturally going to be a slow shift because as as young people are able to bring their bowed instrument into the um, into the rock band or into the church praise group, or into a school strolling strings program, or I could go on and on and on, or an electric violin program or whatever. And they began to see that, oh, wow, this, this instrument does have a role in a participatory environment. And then they become teachers, then they'll start to incorporate that as they go. And I think really, uh, in a lot of ways, we're, you and I are sort of the front edge of of starting to starting to feel that. I mean, you know, when I was in middle school, my parents were uh, buying me Jean-Luc Ponty records. And um, my first my first rock concert I ever went to see was Kansas. And I love to tell the story that my dad took me to that concert. And believe me when I tell you, the last place my dad wanted to be was at a, <laughs> at a Kansas show. And I, I'll never forget, you know, the first note played and everybody got up on their seats, like we're standing on their seats. And my dad looked at me and was like, okay, here, let's go. Let's get up on our chairs. I thought it was so hilarious. My dad standing on his chair at a Kansas concert is hilarious. But I realized that I wanted to be a participatory musician super, super early. And then sort of had this like I said, maybe a maybe a, I started when I was six, so it's been a forty-five year journey to be you know to be involved in that part of music as a creative, as an artist and a creative musician. And and what I sort of figured out really really early in my teaching career is that in order for me to be my most effective as a teacher and a pedagogue and as a conductor, I had to remain a growing artist on the performance side of things. So there's there's been very few sort of periods of time in my teaching career of 30 plus years that I haven't been kind of focused on some element of my performance in, in an effort to get better, whether it was a, a, a classical concept or a or a improvisatory concept or a or a or writing or arranging or whatever it might be. I've always tried to sort of add to that. And ultimately um, I, I think that young teachers now have way more opportunities to to express that and then to bring it into their classroom as they as they become us. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I love that. And I want to throw you a little bit of a hardball question here, Scott, if you don't mind. And I know if there's anybody that can handle it, it's you. In fact, there's not a lot of people that I feel like I could ask this of and could, could really answer it. So, you know, I, I struggle with how to articulate the problem that I have with feeling that the classical education community, classical music education community, can sometimes seem elitist and or that their their elitistness, <laughs> their elitism could be, you know, possibly sometimes looked at as sort of a, a byproduct of ignorance 
or just a lack of exposure, I guess, in a more polite way to some of these concepts we're talking about. You know, how, how is a classical violin teacher going to teach groove if they've never thought about it themselves? Obviously, right? And, and so I don't want to disrespect anybody, you know, but it is what it is at the same time. And this is what I've been <laughs> pushing for for many years. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, what do you think about the idea that the classical music education community can sometimes be dismissive of other traditions of music and or if you want to call it the participatory culture, jazz, fiddle music, they can be outright dismissive. I mean, they can say, well, that those aren't masterworks. That's not high art. How do you, how do you, how do you deal with this? Because I know that you're in both worlds, even more than I am. You know, how, what's your take on that? My take is that, um, I, first of all, I would say that, that I haven't had as strong a, uh, an experience I haven't had as strong a negative experience as as you've just expressed. Um, for the most part, my experience with the 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 sort of let's call it the conservatory community hmm. is yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, is one of respect that I can sit on both sides of the uh, of the fence. And that being said, I do think that attitudes about music you use the word ignorant, and 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 I don't. I don't know. Again, we can only know what we know, and we can only draw on that which we know the most about. And and my feeling is that a lot of times, if somebody is dismissive, it's really born out of more out of a little bit of fear or a little bit of just uh, just not knowing about it, not knowing well how does this impact what I do and and where my priorities are, and and ultimately it comes to priorities and. And I think that all of the things that you've articulated about, let's say, early um, music education and things that that I really believe and I've incorporated into my my orchestra or my my own children or my guest conducting or my pedagogical lectures or whatever, are they're all built on my priorities. And the fact is that we'll all encounter people who have different priorities based on based on their experience and based on what they know or what they don't know. I use a, a word that you actually mentioned earlier, and that's you, you don't, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And uh, so I find that it's my job to be really exceptional at both disciplines. And that way, when I can bring one into the other, folks then kind of go, oh, okay, wow, I can I can respect that. And I can see that that's been a big part of that person's scholarship. I oftentimes say that y- you'll remember back in the uh, 90s, I was doing loads and loads of uh, electric violin clinics, and, I'm, and I still do clinics for NS Design Electric Violins. And the main thing when you're talking about electric violins, which traditional teachers are often uncomfortable with, is to allow them to know that you live in their world and that you speak their language and that strong pedagogy is the core of that and strong technique is the core of being a good electric violinist. So some of it is simply making sure you have legitimacy uh, on on both sides. And, I, and that's a place that I feel like I don't know that I'm uniquely qualified to do that, but I'm, I'm certainly part of that process. And it's something that I really care about.
and and I and I definitely would be remiss not to acknowledge and point out obviously something that I believe which is that the things that we learn from good classical pedagogy are incredible skills and knowledge and a lot of that needs to be passed over you know the to participatory culture jazz musicians can learn a lot from what we learn as as classical uh, musicians i and i'd be the first to acknowledge that i mean it's all good stuff too and we don't we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater but if i could just go a little bit deeper with <laughs> you know um something that i would ask on this is there a parallel in terms of this conversation we're having about you know let's let's assume that as you know people that are going down this kind of pure conservatory route of learning classical music and all the skills and all the knowledge that goes into that and all the history at the exclusion of other traditions of thought you know or other kind of cultures of learning music you know there are various ways to kind of justify that and and say well okay that that might take some time and you know it's going to happen when it happens and people know what they know at what point is this this the concept of multiculturalism you know, at what point is that really a parallel that we have to look at and say, do we have a responsibility to teach different these different ideas? Are we being in some way harmful or really negative, even if we don't mean to be negative, by mm, excluding other realms of thought, other cultural traditions? You know, and this is a big social issue as well and it's an issue and it's an issue in education outside of the discipline of music where do you see how do you see that fitting into this conversation and what's your take on that there's a lot of directions you can go on that and i think again i feel like we can only really know what we know and and um if i withheld parts of my experience as a musician or philosophies or concepts that I've learned from my orchestra, from my students, uh, I think that I'm, then I'm guilty of that. Or, but if I don't have that perspective, it, it's, it's very hard to require that, you know? Uh, I think that, again, I, I look at school programs and how many requirements are placed on school music teachers to to be multicultural in their in their approach and and I certainly applaud that and one of the one of the aspects of my teaching that I wouldn't trade for anything is the is the multicultural opportunities that I've been given over the years to teach in a lot of different types of schools and and a lot of different cultural cultural areas. Um, so, so there's a lot of good multicultural education going on out there and particularly in the, in the music classroom. I think that, uh, music teachers have a lot of expectations, particularly in school classrooms. So, so, so there is that, that being said, if, if a, a leading instructor is, uh, conservatory trained and, and, and their experience is with Bach, Beethoven and Brahms, and their experience is not with, uh, uh, you know, Duke Ellington or whatever else, then or or Rush or whoever it is that you and I have been have been influenced by, you know, is it is it their responsibility to sort of venture outside of that box? And and I don't know. I think students seek out, particularly in in a private lesson setting, students seek out what they feel they they need. And 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 I would say that that we can't forget the fact that. Essentially, for a bowed string instrument that 
I, I, I just made a couple of notes where you're asking the question that, that in the end, tone and technique are going to carry somebody through lots and lots of eclectic, multicultural, musical education if they have that sort of that core, that core to their understanding. And then they say, okay, now let's go find out what else is available to me as a functional musician or, or their parents help guide them along that way or their school teacher does that or whatever it might be. Having that really strong core of tone, technique, and perspective to me is never, ever, ever a bad thing. And it really goes back to an expression of priorities to me. Uh, uh, and should some of it could and should some of it be institutionalized? Yeah, you know, I, I think we've seen that already, you know, with the national standards for music education. You can't get away from the national standards requiring some element of world music instruction and some element of improvisation, some element of composition. Although it doesn't happen, though. I, I, well, yeah. And, and, uh, and in some places it doesn't happen. In some right. places it really happens. Oh, okay. And, um, good, good point. And I, yeah. And I do think that that teachers will gravitate to the stuff that they're kind of most comfortable with. And and uh, one of the things, you know, it's funny just talking about improv improvisation in the school classroom. I think I've always felt, and I don't do this every day, so I, I, I'm, I'm stepping way out on a limb here, but it's something I've been thinking about. And it's how I learned how to improvise. So often when we start teaching, and I know you believe this to some extent too, because I've seen you teach seminars where you, where you start with essentially Pachelbel's Canon, where, where, it, where um, I think a lot of teachers think that, well, if we're going to teach improvisation, we have to sort of uh, figure out the blues scale or teach the blues and that that's the beginning of improvisation. And and I've always really felt for bowed string players who are so steeped in uh, major and minor um, uh, tonality from from the word go, that the that diatonic harmonies are the way to go yeah. early on with improvisation, just to get off page and to get comfortable with, you know, composing or improvising melodies over, you know, straight diatonic harmony. It's um, and that's really that's that's how I learned. You know, I'd I'd put on James Taylor and and play along with the record or. Uh, sort of the tunes that I liked to play. And then once I learned how to, how to write using diatonic harmony, then I would play over it with my violin. And, and I learned that way and then eventually learned how to use a dominant seven or to use a, a you know, a, a minor third over major tonality or whatever to, to sound cooler. But, but it, but it, for me, it started with diatonic harmony and, and then building melodies over that. And, and, um, and I think, I think there's fear, you know, like, oh, how do I do this? So, so in the end, um, people who create good um, opportunities for teachers to uh, have a system, I think, you know, like like what I've seen you do with the uh, Pachelbel Canon or, you know, uh, some of the materials that are that are out there for learning improv and that teachers can sort of grab onto something that maybe is a little outside their comfort zone. I think the more opportunity there is to make that happen. The voice of reason always in diplomacy. <laughs> Scott Scott Laird always bringing in this. Uh, <laughs> I always I always think of you when, when I think I'm just being too extreme. I, what would Scott say? And it's one of the things I admire and, and love about you is your compassion. And um, I guess uh, I'd love to ask you a little bit about that. But I want to ask about how your your faith impacts your work as a teacher, 
And uh, because I know it's a it's a huge it's a huge thing for you, and it's something I really respect about you. You certainly don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but but I'd love to. It always inspires me to hear you talk about your faith, and so I'd just love to give you the op- opportunity to do that if you want. Thanks, man. I I really appreciate it, and I would say that if there's a a guiding phrase for me, uh, it's it's that love works. Um, in the end. I think I got into teaching and I do what I do every day because ultimately I want to love the people that I encounter uh, through the music that I'm teaching and the opportunities that, that I've been very fortunate to be able to provide to students. And I believe that great music making starts with great relationships. And that if if I can just love the people around me and encounter them in a way that they know they're respected and that they're um, valued on, on a daily basis, then then I've done my job in beginning that relationship. And then and then things are uh, uh, then there's then, then there's an openness to um, to the musical ideas that I that I want to present. And um, I just I just over the years. I've found that um, that that works. It works for me, um, and we we have a, a philosophy here at my school that we're going to um, put the needs of our individual students above the needs of our ensemble, which sounds really paradoxical to the way most ensembles are run. Uh, and and I tried doing it the other way for a lot of years, and at least at this institution, it didn't work. And what I learned was the more we take the time to care about our students and the more we articulate the fact that we're concerned about them as human beings and we're concerned about keeping music in their life and we're concerned about caring for them, that then their dedication to the orchestra and the material at hand is is much, much, much greater. And I I find that in my guest conducting appearances and I find that in my in in frankly all my work. And if, and of course, you know, that that concept of love for me is 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 based on my faith. It's based on a model of what I would call servant leadership that I've embraced. And um, and I try to do my best to model that on a daily basis. I, I, I really try not to evangelize. That's not really how I like to operate. But I I feel like if if I'm willing and able, and it's you know I'm not perfect at it by any means at all, but if I'm able to be sort of that that voice of servant leadership, and if I can step in front of an orchestra as someone who's there to serve that orchestra, not who's someone there to be a dictator, that is uh, not really the way it usually happens, and I think that it's just been super effective for me and. Um, and people tend to notice it, and people tend to gravitate to it, and it's it's genuine for me. It's not um, it's not lip service. It's something that I really want to be, and I aspire to be that, and I aspire to be kind of a loving guy. And so far, that's working out okay for me. Yeah, that's that's so awesome. Yeah, that probably, if I had to say that the thing that I always, whenever I walk away from a conversation with you over the years that we've known each other and become friends, it is the, I just want to say, you know, and I want to acknowledge you because you do model coming from a place of love. It's always, it's always inspired me like in such a deep way 
just just any encounter with you just just to walk away and be like man i need to be more like that you know because scott he's he's you know so i i really just you know thank you for being a model to me and to so many people i mean really showing how to do that so well it's it's just it's amazing man that's um, really humbling chris I, I i really appreciate you saying that it that means an awful lot to me because you know that feeling is very very mutual and uh to to have that kind of affirmation it makes it emboldens me to continue you know to do what we do and 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 ultimately i i feel i do feel like we're we are models for others. As I get older, I, I definitely feel like my role has changed in our industry, you know, and that, um, you know, at some point in your life, you realize you're not the promising young kid anymore and you've been around the block. And um, and, I, and I really do aspire to be a, uh, a model for young teachers that are that are coming up through. And 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 so your words mean a lot to me. I really appreciate it. It's humbling. In our closing, for today at least, I want to ask you what you think about this final thing, and it ties into what you just said. As I said, I, I, I'm not a trained pedagogue. I never studied you know, teaching, but of course, as you know, I do a, a ton of teaching um, in my own realms. Um, but I, I, I stayed in Norway this summer with a, a family of a, of a full-time teacher, a couple full-time teachers, and uh, Obi his uh was my host and and he's been a teacher for about 30 years he's taught in high school middle school elementary general um subjects not music uh in in schools in norway and i and i said yet yeah, you know what does it mean to you to be a you know to be a good teacher and he told me he said there's just three things you need to know and one is you need to know your stuff know your subject matter uh two is you need to you need to speak to the children at their level, you need to know their level and meet them at that level. And he said the third and the third thing is to always come from a place of love, or in other words, just love them. And he said, and that's it. Those are the three things that make a good teacher. Do you agree with that, or is there anything you'd you'd add to that? Or? Well, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I I, I think that um, the beginning of Two of those things are the beginning of being heard by anybody, uh, care, caring for people and being interested in what they're interested in and, and caring for them is the beginning of any conversation, really. It, when think about the people you encounter that are just into themselves and and it, it, we turn them off pretty quickly. And so so that's foundational to teaching. In fact, I, uh, my friend Rebecca McLeod from the University of Green UNC Greensboro and some others have done research on master teachers and they've found that master teachers use over 75% of their students' names in their classroom in every single class period. So in other words, simply, simply referring to your students by name goes so far with kids because 
that happens so infrequently in their day in a school classroom. So, uh, so that's uh, that's the beginning of of teaching success because people become open to us and and um, knowing your stuff. The first one you listed is, I guess, I'd call it one A uh, um, because if we don't have uh, if we haven't done the background work to really know what we're talking about, to have well thought out ideas and um, these pedagogical systems or whatever. I mean, I, kids can sift through that. Students can sift through a pretender really, really quickly. And uh, so uh, I re really believe that as well. And what was the second one again? I just have lost my train of thought a little bit. Come meet them at their level. Yeah. I, I had a thought about that when you mentioned that as well, and and, and I totally agree with it. I think so often um, people get uh, get to talking over or under the heads of of students, and that's a that's the hardest one of the three. I think I, I, I've had people say before that one of the reasons that um, some of my work with middle school students is is accepted the way it is is because I, I I treat them like I just have high expectations of them, and I, I, I've always appreciated that. Um, that um, that thought. So so, I think again, it's some of it's how we approach them, and then but what is the is the content the appropriate content for them at that time? And that goes back to that whole idea of being sequential and systematic in the way we in the way we teach and the way we operate. I think I think uh, particularly when you're encountering students for the first time, you're making really quick assessments of you know where are they. And how do we get them from this point to the next point and knowing what those steps are? So I think that's what, what you're saying with that statement is meeting them right where they are, not uh, – not, I, I think oftentimes of the um, – there was a commercial when we were kids. I don't even remember what it was for. I, it might have been – I don't even remember, but it was like a little baby sitting looking at a whole lobster on a plate and like, okay, that looks good, but how do I – how do I how do I get through that shell? And I think so often, you know, folks might want to give them lobster, but students aren't ready for lobster yet. You know, and <laughs> got to give them something. You got to meet them where they are. Oh, that's great, man. Well, and that actually kind of it, it it sort of helps me to get further into a question that I've had for a while, which is how teachers balance the priorities of on one hand creating virtuosi or creating master mastery and on the other hand just helping students become better people or become more secure and i it's i've always struggled because i come from the side of you know trying to teach people to be experts you know and I, and without that pedagogical background but i get the sense that you really balance the two and you're just as focused on helping that student to develop as a person would you Absolutely. say that's true yeah, it's definitely true, and and um, you know, just the the world that I live in is particularly here at the School of Science and Math um, is a world where m the vast majority of my students aren't going to go into music as as their exclusive major. Although we send a lot of music majors out from this school as well, but but still, the vast majority of our and and most of those music majors are double majors, you know, or music minors, and we have some magnificent musicians at our school. But but everybody's going to be a 
a human being, you know, and everybody's going to be um, a, a music appreciator. So I, I think that we, you know, our goals would be that that we are that music's a vehicle. You know, we want excellence, and we understand here at the School of Science and Math that that um, music's um, uh, a, a portion of their life here, and they're in a really rigorous academic program. And uh, our goal is to keep keep music in their life and and help them to be fed by what we do in the music classroom, but also to be uh, challenged academically, emotionally, um, and sort of at every level as a leader in in the ensemble. And it, it can be tricky because a lot of kids come to us from uh, ensemble environments where they were able to maybe sit back and particularly smart kids like we get at our school they might have gone okay I get that and they and I always say in music there's comprehension level learning and then there's demonstration level learning and um, lots of kids get it but then to really demonstrate it in a true and and whole way that not only is technical in the way that it's done but also um, feeling and uh, uh, expressive in the way it's done and then that also incorporates the appropriate habits of mind that musicians need, and that's a that's a level that we haven't even touched on yet. About you know what what does a musician need to be thinking while they're sitting in an orchestra or or playing in a rock band or or in the practice room, and and habits of mind are a whole other uh, layer of the things that that I like to think about. But absolutely, and all the while knowing that our goal is excellence and and complete mastery and the two have to coexist because i think you know just just caring about the kids without the goal of excellence and a and a way to get there is kind of wasted it's not wasted time but it's unfulfilled opportunity and um and of course doing the opposite i think also is unfulfilled opportunity because it's because in the end you know we're we're all in this together you know we might as well enjoy it and help each other to be better and, you know, and care for each other along the way too. Amazing. Um, can you, can you let us know what you're up to these days and where people can connect with you? Well, first of all, where can people connect with you? Where they, where can they find you? Yeah. A um, couple of places. Uh, uh, my website is scottlaird.net, uh, which is an easy place to see the things that I'm doing. Um, the thing I've been doing, a lot over the last couple of years is blogging. You can find a link to my blog on my website, but the blog is called Thoughts of a String Educator. And uh, I'd love to have people check that out. Um, that's where I, I just write a lot about a lot of the ideas that we've been talking about today or repertoire that we're working on or things that I'm thinking about as primarily as a string teacher. So that's a that's a spot uh, that they can connect with me as well. And then of course, there's always Facebook and, and that kind of stuff as well. Um, but those are those are the big things. And um, we'll, li lots we'll link to that. Scott Laird is L-A-I-R-D, scottlaird.net. And uh, or Google thoughts of a string educator. I'm definitely going to link to that. If you go to christianhouse.com to my blog, uh, you'll find notes about Scott and links to his work and things like that. Um, and and also the things that you're passionate about doing these days. 
Uh, I think it would be great for people to know what you're up for. Uh, I know that you've done a lot of work during the summers at the Interlochen um, as a conductor there um, for a few years now. And I know that you do a lot of all state orchestra conducting appearances, guesting with regional orchestras and all sorts of conferences where you're you're very sought after. Um you know, as a speaker, as a guest conductor, as an adjudicator, of those types of things, you know, what are you really up for right now? What are you looking to do more of these days? Of course, I'll be giving a session at ASTA in Pittsburgh in March when that rolls along. I'm really excited about that. Um, the session I'm giving this year is called Approach, Arrive, Depart, Developing Expressive Ensembles. And my sister, Stephanie Everett, has an orchestra near Pittsburgh, and so her orchestra will be my demo group for that session at ASTA. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. And um, tons of all-county orchestras coming up. And um, I think, you know, I, I get really excited about the guest conducting appearances. Oh, and I'll be at Interlochen again this summer as well. But um, yeah, I, I, I love doing uh, the conducting appearances because it's just an opportunity to, to meet new kids and meet teachers from around the uh, country and, uh, and to have some of the ideas that I'm passionate about uh, heard on a greater level. So uh, that's what's happening in the short term, though. I've, I've got a busy winter and spring coming up. Well, that's good. If if people want to get Scott on the on the <laughs> on the docket for their all state orchestra or their all county orchestra, you probably better start scheduling it now if you want to get him next year. <laughs> and uh, and who knows, maybe maybe uh, one of these days somebody will hire you and me to come out as a uh, as a as a team for some of these. <laughs> Just name it. I, I'd be up for that anytime. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> pretty pretty fun. Would have a great time. I, I just I want to say again not to overdo it but but I do believe that that uh you know teachers you know can can be undervalued and a lot of people don't understand the level of of training and the level of thought and even the kinds of things that teachers think about and you've really illustrated a lot of those today in this conversation which just again makes me have so much respect for the really heroic work that that you and many other teachers do. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm so grateful to you for, for sharing with me and taking your valuable time away from your family, uh, on your holiday break, your Christmas break, uh, to do this, Scott. And, and just want to say thank you so much for all the work you've done teaching kids around this country. And thank you for teaching me and, and thank you for teaching us today. Well, I, I really appreciate you having me. I'm really honored to to be here and I appreciate your your generous words and uh, look forward to the next time. All right, brother. All right. Thanks for listening in on this episode with Scott Laird. And uh, go over to the show notes at christianhouse.com. Just go to christianhouse.com and click on the blog. You'll find this podcast at the top, along with all the show notes, more info on Scott, how to find him. I would really appreciate your comments uh, there, uh, a share. You know, Share this with your friends on email, Facebook, Twitter, whatever it might be. And let me know if there's something you'd like for us to cover. 
If there's any questions, any kind of feedback whatsoever, you can reach me at chris at christianhouse.com. Again, huge thanks to our sponsors, Yamaha Strings and Electric Violin Shop. And don't forget, if you go to yamahastrings.com, you can get on their email list. They've got a bunch of good stuff. And uh, if you go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings, you can access their unparalleled phone support. You can also even get a 5% discount uh, on any purchases just by going through that link and letting them know that we sent you. This time of year, um, in late March, we're gearing up at Creative Strings for the Summer Conference, uh, which happens every the first week of July, every summer in Columbus, Ohio. If you haven't been to the Creative Strings Summer Conference, you're missing out. And this year is our 15th year. I'm so excited about our 15th year. We've got a lot of really special things that we're doing. Um, and it's just exciting to me to see generations um, changing within the string world, within the music education world, within the culture of, of uh, performing arts, and seeing how our community at the summer conference is, is a part of that and, and just being educated and inspired by the incredible people that come from around the world every year. So uh, do go to christianhouse.com forward slash education if you'd like to learn about the summer conference or if you'd like to learn about the academy, our online program, take a free lesson with me and learn about our outreach in schools and studios and all that good stuff. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.